Right, and we are live back with Mark Robert. And this is uh, going to be an interesting time tonight because we have a new channel. What? Yes. Oh, yeah. That like, he has a, <laughs> that's the rumor. We have a channel, and that's going to add a little bit of complications to this. But I want to encourage everyone to please consider moving over to the new channel. So, after I don't know, 10 minutes or so. I'll be ending the stream on this channel, but the whole stream is playing on the other channel. I have a pinned comment in the chats, very top. You can just click it. Please consider doing that, going over and subscribing. I'm doing this for Mark. Mark, you know, he decides that, you know, occasionally he'd like to get paid for his efforts and, and living his crazy Forrest Gump life. And I want to be able to, let Mark get a, a part of everything. So please consider going over to the other channel, if you will, subscribing there, and let's get on with the show. We have a lot to cover. Now, very quickly, I'm going to do like I do, or like uh, David does or Viva does with um, Barnes. And the question is, anything new on the parole? Uh, nothing this week, but this will take a number of months. So it's, it's probably, you know, it's going to reach Newsom's desk, um, at some point in the next month or two. So nothing this week, uh, in particular news shattering. Now, briefly, there was an article about this, I think in the New York post and the Hill did some coverage on it with Ryan Grimm. That there seemed to be an interesting situation with the parole. Do you want to go into that, or is that something? No, no, we're going to wait. We'll just we're just going to wait to see what happens with the uh, Newsom thing, and then I'll we'll comment on it. I don't want to jinx the guy. You know what I mean? Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So, what are we starting with tonight? We are, of course, waiting for Barnes. Um, name my new, let's name my new book, Waiting for Barnes. Um, <laughs> it's a off of Waiting for Guffman, but the Waiting for Barnes one is going to sell through the roof. Oh, absolutely. And um, Barnes, just to let everybody know, well, he may be delayed because apparently there are plumbers mm -hmm. in the house still. Plumbers. Yes. And, and Mark and I were just talking about this earlier plumbers. about how plumbers, they just plumbers seem to come up when you're talking about espionage, like, you know, the whole Watergate thing. Those were all plumbers. And people break into the house are plumbers. And you know, or the phone are company good or the AT&T, my bell comes in. Exactly. And plumbers seal leaks. Yeah, they so, seal leaks, my friend. There may be some all... leaks in Barnes's house that need to be sealed. I you never know. Yep. I mean, if anyone watched Tush Hush, so wouldn't put it past him. So I believe we will be going and talking about the case that was being explored on whether Sirhan Sirhan did the actual assassination himself and it was spearheaded by an individual um was a baxter well i just wanted to first as long as we're going to wait for barnes why don't we just do the two things about paul schrade uh okay. that we have that, because that doesn't necessarily involve barnes so if we can run 
the CNN thing about uh, Schrade and then my clip, I can talk a little bit about more about Paul Schrade's work in uh, trying to get the investigation reopened, which he's been trying to do for 50 years since 1973, okay. uh, 71. So we can, if we could maybe yeah, bring everybody up. Yes, and, and you, for the audience was shot in the head. Here he is, I think, at the age in his early forties. He was a United Auto Workers executive uh, who has a long political history with the Kennedy clan and as an advisor and also as a Democratic operative. Uh, Paul Schrade was in the kitchen and was shot in the middle of his forehead uh, by Sirhan, the first shot uh, most people believe uh, went into his head. He's now uh, 96 years old and has been working to get the case reopened since 1971, uh, ostensibly from a ballistics and, and forensics angle. Uh, he also has other theories, but the, the main theory is that the ballistics don't work, and he's correct about that. And in fact, there's a clip we're going to show now, I believe, about him talking about uh, two guns and 13 shots, which were recorded on a tape recorder. And uh, CNN did a piece on Paul Schrade talking about the 13 shots that Van Prague uh, studied with uh, incredible modern day audio forensics and determined it had to be two guns because many of the shots uh, audio wise overlap. And even at the beginning of the, the night it happened, um, uh, people like Walter Cronkite were saying uh, that it was a machine gun, that there were so many um, bullets, there were so many explosive rounds that uh, many of the observers felt it was either two or three guns or a repeating machine gun. That's how repetitive the shots were uh, within the, the kitchen in the Ambassador Hotel. All right. Paul Schrade, uh, as a personal friend of, of Robert F. Kennedy's, what is your reaction to this uh, new development, the, the, the new audio evidence that, that has come to light of late? Well, I was surprised that we, we found it uh, 40 years later, uh, but I'm very uh, satisfied that we've got uh, really good scientific information now that backs up uh, all the physical evidence we discovered in the pantry at the Ambassador Hotel uh, after the shooting that night. There are bullet holes uh, that were uh, uh, identified by the police department of Los Angeles and by the FBI. And what this new scientific information on this audio tape, it backs all that up. So you think the the evidence the Przinsky recording is is pretty strong evidence very strong I don't I don't see how it can be refuted unless somebody uses the same kind of technology and and methodology that was used by uh, the audio engineer and forensic scientist uh, uh, Philip van Prague uh, he he's done some new work and uh, uh, and and I don't think I see how it can be refuted by anybody Right. Okay, so what, what he's talking about here is the audio recordings that were done uh, during the shooting, then analyzed. They took the audio recordings and this information to the Attorney General of the State of California at the time. And a woman named Kamala Harris, who was the Attorney General, turned down their request <laughs> to uh, reopen the case at that time. 
So Paul is not wrong. He's absolutely correct. It's irrefutable. The audio forensics are irrefutable. The physical forensics are irrefutable. I mean, there there's bullet holes in the door jam that are pointed out uh, in those photos. You'll see two cops um, looking at the bullet holes. William Bailey wrote a letter, gave it to Vincent Bugliosi, uh, that he was there that night. William William Bailey was an FBI agent who was sent to the kitchen that night to look for evidence and file a report, you know, for Hoover as to what had happened. And here's a shot of Noguchi, uh, the county coroner, Thomas Noguchi, looking at the two uh, additional bullet holes uh, in direct line with where Sirhan would have been shooting. This is in back of the victims. This is the door jam in the pantry uh, to the end of the of the pantry that were in the divider. LAPD. So, go ahead. I'm sorry. So they would have to come from in front of. Yeah, yeah. This is in, to get in the wall there. Yeah, this is ballistically in a direct line to the same height as Sirhan. Uh, the direct line, you know, is like 65 feet from where he was shooting straight ahead. So LAPD removed that um, divider. Um, multiple police officers said that they could see the actual head of the bullets in those two holes. Uh, that's what Bailey says, the FBI agent. That's what uh, Rizzo says, the LAPD guy. It's circled. It's photographed by the Associated Press. The Associated Press puts the photograph in the paper and it says two bullet holes uh, from Kennedy assassination. That gets printed, goes national wire services and everything else. So LAPD removes the um, this guy here, Lieutenant Manny Pena, who was the head of the investigation, special unit senator. They removed that uh, girder. They removed that and destroyed it, of course. Um, Pena was a CIA operative. He worked in the LAPD intelligence unit and he was completely in charge of the investigation. That's Manny shoot him up Pena. Uh, Manny shoot him up Pena, shot 11 men while on the job over the course of his career. Worked out of the bank robbery division in the Deep Valley in LA uh, out of Van Nuys, I believe. Goes to, uh, this is his partner, Hank Hernandez, Sergeant Hank Hernandez. Um, the two of them ran the entire investigation. When I say ran it, what that meant was uh, witness tampering, uh, witness intimidation, destruction of evidence, uh, phony lie detector tests, um, things of that sort. They were two muscle guys. And Hernandez and uh, Pena came back to L.A. from their CIA uh, assignments. Uh, Hernandez chiefly was sent to Central and South America to help with the CIA in intimidation and interrogation of various political operatives. He was a master of the lie detector machine, uh, although he used it as a device to intimidate more than uh, actually printing out the results of a lie detector test. He would just use it as part of his good cop, bad cop routine, which he used on Sandra Serrano, the, the young teenage girl who claimed to witness the polka dot dress lady uh, running down the stairs saying, we shot him, we shot him, we shot him. And she said, who did you shoot? And then she said, we shot Senator Kennedy. Uh, this this Sandra Serrano is then brought in for interrogation. She's merely a witness and she's browbeaten into submission by Hank Hernandez. Uh, Sandra Serrano still lives in, in East L.A. right now and runs a um, hmm. nonprofit uh, child daycare center, I believe, in uh, Boyle Heights. 
Um, Noguchi lives too, still, doesn't he? Yeah, Noguchi's old. Uh, yeah. And getting back to what, um, getting back to Paul Schrade for a minute, I just wanted to show if we could show some of that footage that I shot with Paul Schrade. Um, sure. If we, because I just wanted to complete the thing on Paul Schrade. Paul Schrade is a national hero. What this man has done is dedicated his life after being. He, I mean, he could have been killed that yeah. just as easily um, as RFK. But so I started making a documentary on Paul Schrade and about his life, not necessarily about this, because Paul Schrade is an American hero. He's also an iconoclastic American in terms of working with United Auto Workers, uh, working out here with the aircraft industry and and uh, developing a relationship with the Kennedy clan over many years. I mean, this his relationship with the Democratic Party goes back to the 50s. Uh, as an organizer, and he was very, very tight with Chavez and also with the um, with members of, of, of that union here in California. Um, he lives close by to me. So I've been I've shot about four hours with him. He's 96 years old now and uh, very, very lucid, very sharp. Um, and these and are recent. You just shot this these. Is, uh, this is very ago. recent. Yeah, I just wanted to show you a clip of what we're talking about in this particular scene. Uh, Paul and I are going through my photo album of my film, which is called RFK Must Die, separate project. That's a, a featured narrative film that the Kennedys now have and Thomas Jane is attached and Oliver Stone is executive producing. That's a feature film. What I'm shooting here is a documentary about Paul Schrade. And in this scene, which is in his backyard here in the Hollywood Hills near me, he is going through my photo album uh, about the assassination, which covers step by step chronologically what's in my script, uh, RFK Must Die. So let's just take a, a quick look at what we got here, a minute or two of this clip here. All right. Before I start the clip, I'm going to go ahead and shut down this on my Eric Hunley channel. Again, okay. I have a link in the description to go to the new channel. Please do. 100% of this will be there. There's a lot more content there. There's more coming. Consider subscribing while you're there. But for now, I'm going to take this off of the Eric Hunley channel, and then we'll start the uh, film. Right on. And here's another reenactment. This is um, also showing the takedown with uh, the gun and, and the proximity of the handgun. Um, to Bobby here again, uh, reenactment of Cesar shooting an RFK, pulling him backwards onto him with his gun drawn, which he claims he did. Yeah. Okay, it's not that far fetched. Here is a close up of shot two. This is uh, Cesar gun position two, right in back of him. This is probably the armpit shot here, uh, going up into the ceiling, Paul. Mm. If you follow that uh, angle. Now, this is your guy. Here's Jim Yoda. This yep. is what I wanted to show yep. you. With the receipt in hand, this is Jim Yoda holding the Cesar gun receipt, which says, if you could read that. Yeah, I've got a copy of that. Okay, so it says, on the day of September 6th, Paulie, that's what yeah. I was trying to tell you, yeah. not June 6th. Yeah. September 6th, 1968, received $15 from Jim Yoda uh, help for gun involved HR-22 pistol nine-shot serial number Y- one three three two signed Thane E. Cesar. Okay, that's a pretty official document. Yeah. Right. And uh, the police ignored that for a while, and then uh, 
uh, Caesar's wife, it's, uh, after he died, said that she was being harassed. She finally gave a copy to the LAPD after he died. Mm. So they didn't have that, didn't recognize that. They didn't want to say anything. Right. Well, John possible. Christian says that Yoder gave it to him when he visited him yeah. and that he didn't turn it over to LAPD because they didn't ask, Yeah, uh, which was pretty interesting. Now, this guy, you know, yep. this is Sergeant Hank Hernandez. Who yes. Later becomes. Who was at my house? No. Yeah. This guy? Yeah. You mean to investigate the case or? Yeah, to interview me. Oh, after the case. After the case. Oh, oh I, I thought you meant way after. Okay. No. So what did he say to you? Several days later. What did he say? Well, I just, you know, to, you know, I didn't have any real memory except being shot, and, you know, and, and seeing Bob do. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll get a little snippet there. There's more coming on that. I've shot about four hours worth of footage on, on Paul. Just uh, really great stuff. Kind of he, should we uh, bring up a picture? I mean, because it went right into uh, Caesar. Um, should we bring up a picture of him? Or Oh, yeah, uh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> we, could get, we could get into Caesar. And, uh, uh, yeah, because there's a whole history of him that you were um, Yeah, the Caesar thing earlier. is really where I wanted to go. This is uh, <laughs> Dan Eugene Caesar. He worked for Ace Security uh, literally that night of the assassination. He uh, had multiple storylines for why he was there. He said he'd worked for Ace and been at the ambassador on numerous occasions. That was a lie. He had the same exact gun as Sirhan, only his was a nine-shot uh, version of the 22. Uh, by his own admission, for reasons that nobody can explain except him, uh, months before the assassination, he took the gun out to the woods with some friends and fired it rapidly into a tree asking his friends how many shots he had just fired and none of his friends got it correctly and why he would do this um yeah. is only something that he can explain i guess average people you know uh <laughs> average people don't do that but thane eugene caesar was determined to find out if his own friends could count the number of bullets he was firing rapidly into a tree which you know goes to the heart of the case if you're overlapping and shooting simultaneously as someone else how do you count the amount of shots that were being fired, which is why he did it, most people believe. You know, he um, he had a 38 on him at the time. Um, he doesn't know about the 22. He tells the uh, LAPD, once again on the record, that he sold the 22 months before the assassination. And what Paul and I are discussing there is the actual receipt that Jim Yoder produces from September of 1968, showing that he bought the gun from Thane Eugene Caesar on September 6, 1968. Caesar told the LAPD that he sold the gun to uh, Jim Yoder in February of that year. That was a lie. Uh, Yoder worked with him at Burbank Skunk Works, which is the CIA-funded uh, base in Burbank that developed the U-2 spy plane and the Black Hawk and other uh, CIA uh, uh, weapons. This is Jim Yoda with the actual uh, gun. He retired and he moved to Arkansas and um, he bought the gun before he retired as he was retiring from um, uh, Thane Eugene Caesar here in LA and then went to Arkansas and the gun was robbed. They found it in a swamp uh, a year or two later 
The gun still exists. Uh, Paul knows where it is. This is Jim Yoda with the receipt. Uh, the gun is still available, although in pretty shaky shape. A not cheap. <laughs> a gentleman that Paul knows has possession of the gun. Um, that gun is told to Yoda that uh, Caesar tells Yoda to be careful with the gun that, quote, it had been used in a police shooting, unquote, for reasons, again, completely insane. His gun is not tested by the LAPD. He's about to get a lie detector test by LAPD. And he says uh, the LAPD, which is documented, LAPD says we're going to do a lie detector test with you. And uh, moments later, the tape comes back on the audio tape saying we've decided not to do a, 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 a lie detector test with you. So in the same tape, where he's being interviewed by the LAPD, they threaten him with a lie detector, and they threaten him. They say, we'd like to take a lie detector test. And then two minutes later, they changed their minds and said there will be no lie detector test. So um, that's an interesting, bizarre twist. He asked not to testify in the case. I don't know how you do that. Uh, he just said it. He told the police he'd rather not be involved in the case, in the trial, rather. He'd rather not be involved, you know what I mean? Because if you're the actual killer, I mean, why would you want to be involved in the case of another shooter? I mean, that could get awkward, you know. Sure. But, uh, yeah, Cesar ends up living in the Philippines. He divorces his wife. He marries a Filipino, lives in the valley in L.A., in Simi Valley. He ends up working, um, at, like I said, he works at uh, Lockheed, which is in Burbank. That's the company that develops the U-2 spy plane. He has a top-level security clearance there. He's designated as, once again, a plumber and he's a plumber <laughs> it's a theme it's a theme. Up barns he's already. a plumber who's probably at barnes's house right now probably right at least his descendant because the cia does like family they do right we've discussed so, that cesar is protected until the day he dies by a journalist named dan moldea who wrote a book called the killing of robert kennedy and the book goes along until the final chapter you know, about the conspiracy to kill Kennedy, the final chapter, he changes his mind and says, I made the whole thing up. And uh, there is no conspiracy to kill RFK. And that um, what really happened is RFK just stumbled forward into the gun of Sirhan that was somehow allowed to kiss the back of his neck with the, nu the muzzle of the gun, thereby having, as Noguchi pointed out, a point blank a skin contact shot behind the ear of Robert Kennedy. That was the coup de gras that killed him. And if, if we could show the 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 mock-up of how Mold, how uh, Cesar used his gun, I think it may be helpful. The two shots with the, um, sure. the, the illustrated shots of how most people believe the angles of the guns line up with, with, with um, Cesar in back of him as a security guard. This is uh, the first shot that goes underneath. This is an actual, completely accurate angle of the first shot. And keep in mind, the Sirhan character, who is a patsy in this thing, is three and a half to four feet in front of the senator at this time. This is the uh, recreation of the security guard, quote unquote, uh, Thane Eugene Caesar, taking his gun, which he admits he drew from his holster. He admits that. Uh, Dan Shulman, who was a reporter, said that the security guard drew his gun from his holster and returned fire. 
Uh, numerous mm. people, numerous witnesses saw the gun out of the holster. That's not debatable any longer. Uh, Shulman says that, that the guard returned fire against uh, Sirhan uh, and went on TV, was interviewed. You know, he worked for KNXT, which is a CBS affiliate here, immediately gave an interview moments after the uh, after the assassination that Kennedy was shot three times. He was the only one to be accurate in that regard. The three shots were, were what hit Kennedy. And everybody else said there was only two or four or others. He was the only one to get that right. And that is the first shot. That shot goes up into the ceiling uh, above Sirhan's head. And those ceiling tiles were removed by LAPD. This is the second shot as RFK falls backwards. This is the coup de grace. And whoever did this... This is the actual angle of the actual gun with the bullet going into the back of the head of Robert Kennedy. How Sirhan could have done this is, of course, a mathematical and scientific impossibility. The um, autopsy report was supervised by about 20 medical doctors uh, brought in to oversee Noguchi's report. Noguchi, if I can read the quote, this is the actual, this is another uh, demonstration of how he shot him from behind. Uh, this is while the place is exploding in chaos and Sirhan is shooting wildly. The first two shots by Sirhan uh, are, are what hit Paul Schrade. The first shot, the second shot hits another victim behind him. There's four victims back there. And Sirhan just starts having his hand banged against the steam table by Carl Euchre, the maitre d' and others. So the bullets are just spraying wildly around the hall, but this is going on simultaneously. So, so Sirhan, to, to be clear then, the angle of Sirhan would be where we are looking at this shot. Um, be pretty close. close. Yeah, pretty close. This is a little bit to the left, this shot. He's a little bit to the right of this. Oh, but so it's even more extreme. It's more extreme. Yeah, it's, absolutely, it's, it's, it's just insane in terms of pretzel logic. LAPD tried to recreate it uh, on film, which I have a copy of, and it's just crazy. They try to walk through it. Here's another angle on the same situation. Now, keep in mind, this is the 22 revolver that the uh, actor here holding, holding the gun is using. The 38 may have still been in his holster. The 38 that... Um, he was using, they have a 22 model that looks exactly the same, by the way, uh, mm. of the, of the uh, gun that this guy owned, the 38. The 38, there's a 22 that looks exactly the same, but the same company. So he may, I assume, that was the gun he had in his holster that night was the 22. It just looks like the 38. But neither neither one is tested, so it's, it's irrelevant. He then sells the 22 to Jim, uh, to Jim Yoda. A number of months later. So, you know, the, the amount of, of misinformation coming out of Cesar is, of course, uncanny. I mean, he hates the Kennedys. He's a segregationist, campaigns for George Wallace, votes for Wallace. Um, not that there's anything wrong with any of this stuff, but he, he spoke, you know, quite clearly in interviews with Ted Chirac in the, in the documentary, The Second Gun, that he hated the Kennedys. And, okay, well, I mean, how much more do you need here? This is crazy. <laughs> You know, but the point of the matter is somebody hired him. I mean, he was hired by somebody. It wasn't like mm -hmm. he woke up one day and said, I'm going to go to the I'm going to go to the ambassador and I'm going to shoot uh, uh, RFK. I mean, this is clearly a well thought out plan here. And he is protected for the entire rest of his life by Dan Muldea, 
uh, the journalist who wrote the the book that um, people refer to as the non-conspiracy book, Dan Moldea become this is I don't even know how to explain this, but Dan Moldea becomes his um, the godfather of his children. <laughs> he becomes this is Dan Moldea who doesn't even know the guy becomes the godfather of his children and is given a power of attorney by Cesar to in 1999. Uh, four years after Moldea's book comes out, he's given power of attorney. There's Dan Moldea. He's quite a character. He's another one of these gatekeepers. He's another one of these gatekeepers. Um, he then begins to try to um, charge people if they want to interview Cesar. They will have to pay him, Dan Moldea, who has power of attorney over um, uh, Cesar, um, $25,000. That's his going fee, he says, for an interview. Now, nobody pays the $25,000, which is the point. And three years ago, when RFK Jr. went to see Sirhan and came to the conclusion that I came to, that the killer of his father was indeed Thane Eugene Caesar, he attempts to go interview Thane Eugene Caesar. He wants to meet the killer of his father, according to RFK Jr. And he attempts to run into Dan Moldea. And Dan Moldea says, the interview will cost you $25,000. So Bobby Kennedy says, well, it's a little steep. I'm not going to pay the 25 grand, which is the point. I mean, nobody's going to pay 25 grand. And, and hence, he's guarded by this gatekeeper, uh, Dan Moldea, until the day he dies. And I mean, Moldea now, I, I assume, has uh, control of his estate. And just, you know, a typical relationship. There's a guy named John Minor. Um, I think you have a photo of John. I just want to show you another gatekeeper in this in this case, because John Minor, this guy here was assistant district attorney. John Minor was the guy who tried to intimidate Noguchi into changing the distance of the muzzle from the head of Senator Kennedy. And Noguchi refused to change that muzzle distance. And they didn't even realize it until it was too late, LAPD. And they looked at his testimony, and this is this is the actual testimony. I just want to give you the quote from Noguchi on the witness stand on February 26, 1969, from the Sirhan case. He says, quote, when I said, he's talking about the distance of the muzzle in the gun uh, from Kennedy's head. When I said very close, we were talking about the term of either contact or a half inch or one inch in distance from Kennedy's right ear. Now, at that time, as soon as he's done, Grant Cooper, who is the defense attorney for Sirhan, rushes up and interrupts him after that. Uh, but it's too late and the information is on, on the record. He then, Noguchi said, would you like to see the autopsy uh, photos? And uh, Grant Cooper, the attorney for Sirhan, says, no, 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 no. They're far too gory. We, we get it. We understand. Uh, there's Noguchi's or a quick shot there. Maybe you could find a shot. There's, that's Noguchi later testifying at the ward hearing. But there's also a shot of Grant Cooper. You might want to take a, a quick shot at this corrupt mob attorney. I wanted to save this in case Barnes gets out of his bathroom. Uh, because <laughs> this is more in Barnes's world. But just getting back to John Minor for a second, I'll tell you something about John Minor, the assistant district attorney, was about gatekeepers. John Minor was the one who tried to intimidate Noguchi. Uh, Noguchi wouldn't buckle. So, okay, dig this. So Noguchi's testimony is 22669. On March 4th, literally eight days later, 
I take that back. Six days later, the Gucci is suspended as county coroner of the city of the county of Los Angeles. He's charged with 64 charges of malfeasance, being drunk, being on drugs, dancing around Kennedy's body naked. The most insane shit you've ever heard of in your life. And is suspended and immediately fired by L.A. County because this guy knows the truth of the assassination. And Noguchi is not putting up a fight. They're just saying, we're going to take this guy out of the equation in case he does go on TV or say something stupid. Noguchi is immediately fired because of this testimony um, and silenced. He lawyers up Noguchi and goes to trial, uh, goes to a civil service hearing and has every single charge dropped. And in the hearing, the representative of the district attorney's office who said that this was the most perfect autopsy of any murder in L.A. County was accusing Noguchi of completely being incompetent. So the lawyer said, look, he can't have the most perfect autopsy that you used in your case and be incompetent with his autopsy at the same time. It's absurd. He's either incompetent or the autopsy's uh, uh, imperfect and crazy. So they said that this was the most perfect autopsy ever performed in the county of Los Angeles to this day, to this day. And Noguchi brought in so many other coroners, all these other medical personnel look over his shoulder. So they well, tried he did to- a, He did a bang up autopsy to begin with, if I recall. You, you had mentioned he had like, uh, like damn near a theater of witnesses. Yes, that's like what I'm referring to, the theater of witnesses. <laughs> and that was because the, of the debacle of, at Bethesda with the, with the uh, uh, John F. Kennedy autopsy. Noguchi was advised to get everybody in there so his word could never be disputed. And that's what he did. He brought in coroners from all over the country, military coroners, Cyril Weck coroners, uh, every coroner from the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, everybody was there. Uh, medical doctors from Sina Sinai and, and just everybody. So they then fire him, claiming he's incompetent. And during the hearing, the assistant district attorney says, if we continue this hearing, this is going to create a national security incident. So his lawyer says, in what way? And he says, well, it'll start trouble in the Middle East and there could be war. Uh, so they go out and they come back and they go, all right, we're dropping all the charges against uh, uh, Thomas Noguchi. So all 64 charges, some of them completely deranged of him dancing naked around the body. Uh, just crazy crap. Yeah, no, why did he come up with this? I mean, it, it just drunk. sounds similar. It, it sounds know, like, it, like it, women, shall we say, peeing on a bed or something right, like that. Right, right. Go to the extreme. This? They have to do the totally most salacious, insane things. So it's not even debatable. So he is restored, but the damage has been done. He has been uh, literally knocked back and eliminated at that time from you know doing any TV or anything else. So, I mean, you know, he... he is 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 taken care of by John Minor. Now, the reason I mentioned John Minor is not just because of Noguchi. John Minor is obviously a corrupt assistant district attorney. These are guys who are in this case uh, for a reason. They're not there to play nice. John Minor uh, is linked to a guy named William J. Bryan Jr. Who is, <laughs> that's that's where I was going with this. William J. Bryan Jr. is the man we believe hypnotized Sirhan and many others uh, to commit whatever crimes that Sirhan committed with his little cap gun. Um, so Sirhan and, 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 and William Joseph Bryan, here's William Joseph Bryan right here. Now, William Joseph Bryan is linked. How about if we let him introduce himself? Let him introduce himself. Okay, go ahead. 
Introducing Dr. William J. Bryan, the first medical doctor in the United States to specialize in the practice of hypnotism. In 1960, I was consulted regarding a tragic case of a triple murderer who strangled his victims immediately after viewing the movie Psycho. His fascinating analysis under hypnosis, now a matter of record in my book, came to the attention of the producers of Dementia 13, who asked me to devise a method of preventing a recurrence of this tragedy. You will be given a test prepared by Dr. Bryan to determine your ability to withstand shock. Those unable to pass this test will not be admitted to the theater. In this old castle, death is the youngest thing alive, for it is born and reborn 13 times, each time from a different dementia. A miasma of madness hides the one who delivers death, one who walks with silent tread, and strikes with ruthless force. So he's a, okay, so a fun we, sport. Right. So let's <clears throat> let's see if we can show just the movie posters for the other projects he worked on as a consultant because he was so tied into LAPD and Hollywood that they used him on multiple movie projects. And I'll explain. Well, I know we have this one. He worked on the, <laughs> Okay, so he by his own admission and the admission of uh, William F. Bailey um, hypnotized Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, into confessing the murders that DeSalvo may or may not have convict, uh, committed. But the reality of it is that DeSalvo gets hypnotized, uh, which this is public, this is in the public, that, that, that Brian hypnotized DeSalvo. Now, the reason it's relevant to this case is because in Sirhan's diary, he writes repeatedly RFK must die, but he also writes, die, DeSalvo, die. And he had no knowledge of, of who DeSalvo was. His only connection to DeSalvo, we believe, is through William Joseph Bryan Jr., the hypnotist. Had uh, DeSalvo been caught? Yes. By that point? Oh, okay, I can't yes. remember. The yeah, he, he, was, he was brought in because of the trial. And uh, the reality of it is that... Um, William Joseph Bryan also worked with LAPD on various, uh, the Hollywood Strangler case, and he seems to be involved in the Garrison uh, trial in New Orleans in February of 1969. He goes down to New Orleans to help the Clay Shaw defense team select a favorable jury because Okay, so this is Brian with his control panel. Just to finish out this thing about New Orleans, yeah, yeah, he wrote yeah. a book called The Chosen Ones, and The Chosen Ones is the first book ever written on jury selection. He invents jury selection. He's a medical doctor. He's a psychiatrist. He's a, a lawyer. He's got so many degrees, Brian. Yeah, that's the book right there. Oh, you did get it. Oh, great. Okay. This book, The Chosen Ones, is written by uh, the forward and the intro is written by F. Lee Bailey and Melvin Bellon. That's how big this guy was. So he wrote a book about the psychology of jury selection. He invents jury selection. He uses hypnosis for all kinds of different reasons. This is a photo of him in his office on Alta Vista and Sunset, which is right here. I used to live on Alta Vista between Alta Vista and Sunset where I lived. But this is now the Seven Vale um, Strip Club. But <laughs> in 1968, in this case, 1972, William Joseph Bryan ran his 
hypnotism, American Hypnotic Institute office there. And that control room that you're seeing here, he had different living rooms and bedrooms and rooms set up in little cubicles or, or, or studio spaces where his patients, quote unquote, would be hypnotized and be inside of these environments, uh, whether it was a living room or a bedroom or whatever it was. And then he would hypnotize them and speak to them through these different control panels here. He had audio hypnotic uh, uh, speakers that were put in in each room and microphones. And that, that's him sitting at his control panel. Now, like the voice of God, essentially. Right. That right. makes it, me think of Operation Midnight Climax. Very similar, but this is way past it. He is, he is Jolly West before Jolly West comes on the scene. This guy deprograms the... Um, uh, Korean War, American War veterans who were captured by in North Korea, who came back brainwashed. He deprograms them. He's involved with MK Ultra. He's involved with, uh, you know, hypnot trying to hypnotize and create a hypnotic uh, assassin. The reason he's also important is he is on KABC radio the night of the assassination being interviewed by Art Bream, who was uh, a radio host. And he said in real time live when the assassination broke that he said, when the dust settles, we will find out that the assassin uh, was under the influence of mind control. How he knew that was obviously, you know, part and parcel of his own doing is another shot of him here. He weighed 350 pounds, uh, one of the largest men ever made. <laughs> and he was a Back master. in the day, not now. Yeah, he was a master hypnotist. In fact, F. Lee Bailey brought him into the Boston Bar Association, where there, I think there was about 30 attorneys in a big room, hypnotized all 30 of these uh, doubtful guys. And when they when he snapped them out of their hypnotic state, all 30 of them had 12 inch sewing needles through their arms that he had placed um, during the hypnotic uh, condition they were in. Never trust a man with a chin beard. Uh, this is another shot of William Joseph Bryan. <laughs> he goes back to William Jennings Bryan. I don't think he does. I, I uh, in fact, out. he does. In fact, he does. And I've checked his lineage. He does go back to William Jennings Bryan. Okay. And that's why the CIA likes to use people from um, long lineages of American DNA, uh, including Michael Payne going back to Thomas Payne. And there's a million examples of it. But nevertheless, the point of the matter is, this guy on his deathbed, now on his deathbed, he was with two prostitutes in Vegas. That should be everybody's deathbed. But this was his deathbed. And he kept bragging to these two prostitutes who he used all the time, the same two girls, that he had indeed been the one who hypnotized Sirhan. And then he died. They took him out in a body bag. And the pallbearer at his funeral was a guy from the prosecutor's office, oddly enough, named John Minor. And you say, uh, why would this guy, John Minor, be the pallbearer of William Joseph Bryan's funeral? That's odd, but it gets odder because John Minor, just like Dan Moldea, became the executor of the estate of William Joseph Bryan. And this is the assistant district attorney of Los Angeles. How he ends up being the executor of this guy's estate is, of course, because he is a gatekeeper. Well, and there's he, a tradition of that uh, Vincent Bugliosi was an uh, assistant DA and gatekeeper. Right. But oddly enough, they, Bugliosi comes into this case and believes it's a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. And Bugliosi is working with these guys trying to get the case reopened. This is before he was a DA. And um, I mean, the people involved in this case are so dirty. You've got Evel Younger, 
the first guy who become he's a DA, Evel Younger is a former FBI agent, former OSS. You've got Manny Pena, who's CIA. You've got Robert Kaiser. Now, Robert Blair Kaiser and Michael McGowan are two members of the defense team. And you say, well, what do they have to do with anything? Robert Blair Kaiser worked for Life magazine. He was a CIA uh, mockingbird journalist who was uh, whose mentor or overseer was Claire Booth Luce, the wife of Henry Luce, the owner of, of uh, Life magazine and Time Life. That was his, mm. his mentor and overseer. And Robert Blair Kaiser uh, comes into the case with a book deal all of a sudden to do a book on uh, the assassination and the conspiracy and everything else. So Robert Blair Kaiser is immediately put on the defense team and is ostensibly, quote unquote, an investigator. And he is now reporting directly to the CIA. Uh, Michael McGowan, who is ex-defrocked LAPD, who was fired because he was involved in a land scheme in the valley of selling land uh, uh, plots illegally, he was fired by LAPD. He becomes an investigator on the defense team, and he reports directly to the FBI and LAPD. So these two guys are on the defense team for a reason. They're not real investigators. They're just real mouthpieces for the uh, agencies that are overseeing them. The the uh, Russell Parsons is one of the attorneys, was a target of RFK when RFK was running the rackets uh, hearings in Congress. Parsons was a mob attorney and still was at this time, an older man. And then the lead attorney is Grant Cooper. And Grant Cooper um, is an attorney, uh, one of the most revered attorneys in LA at the time. He's coming off a case with a guy named Johnny Roselli. And you say, Johnny Roselli, that's a that's a familiar name. <laughs> where, does John, where does Johnny Roselli fit into this thing? Well, Johnny Roselli was involved in a mob-rigged card game at the Friars Club in Beverly Hills, where they put holes in the wall to see these wealthy Beverly Hills guys' cards. And hmm. the mob was able to see their hands through these peepholes. So Johnny Roselli was indicted for running a crooked card game at the Friars Club at the, in Beverly Hills. So his attorney was the mob attorney, Grant Cooper. So during the trial, Grant Cooper looked over at the prosecutor's desk and on the desk was an envelope. And in that envelope was the transcription of the grand jury hearings of which no defense attorney is ever privy to see. He gets this and bribes a court clerk to give him the envelope. He gets caught. He gets caught. So Grant Cooper is facing disbarment. He's facing jail. He's facing huge fines. And despite all of that, he is offered right at the same time to be the lead counsel for Sirhan Sirhan. (laughs) (laughs) And he accepts reluctantly, but... He's got to do somebody's bidding to get rid of these charges, which is is the sword of Damocles. There he is. Grant, he's a likable guy. He's like right out of uh, Leave it a Beaver. Grant Cooper immediately tells the jury that that he agrees with every single thing the LAPD is saying. He says that he will contest nothing. He will not contest the ballistics. He will not contest the shooting. He will not contest that Noguchi said it had to be from behind by an inch. 
he just says my client must have lost his mind at that time. He's okay now, but he must have had a diminished capacity. That's his defense. The defense is so effective that the jury uh, uh, negotiates among themselves, deliberates for five minutes, and comes back with a death penalty. Five minutes? No, I, I'm exaggerating. Okay. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but it was a very quick deliberation, very quick, and comes back with um, the death penalty in the gas chamber at, at uh, uh, San Quentin. Wow. So they took about as long as needed to fill out the form. Exactly. And that's <laughs> over. But that was the plan of Grant Cooper. A couple, one month after the trial, uh, all charges against Grant Cooper are dropped. Uh, not surprisingly. Every single person involved in this case is tainted. Uh, the ballistics are tainted. The, the, the prosecution is tainted. The defense team, the judge, everybody. There is nobody who is a straight shooter in this entire case. Uh, Sirhan doesn't know what's going on. He's just, you know, a pawn in their game, obviously. But but Cesar is is really the link. And Cesar, who is merely the shooter, again, like I've said, in political assassinations, it's not who shoots the bullets. It's who pays for the bullets, Eric. And that's really the key here. It's not who the, who who's shooting the gun. It's who hired the guy to shoot the gun. And Cesar did not hire himself. And like I said to you before, I think all roads go back to LBJ. LBJ says repeatedly, I'll just give you a great quote. This this is is my favorite quote by this guy, right? I hope someone shoots and kills the son of a bitch. This is about RFK. This was said in 1968, in January of 1968. It says, says, again, I hope someone (laughs) shoots and kills the son of a bitch. And you go, well, who would say something like that? Maybe a guy in a bar or something. No, no, no. This was said by Clyde Tolson, direct, uh, deputy director of the FBI, who is the boyfriend of Jay Hoover. It's an odd thing to say, but nevertheless, that's what he said. Okay, so then LBJ says, uh, I'm going to slit his throat if it's the last thing I do. And he says this to a number of people over a period of years, uh, LBJ. When Kennedy is shot and he's lying on the table, the family requests that the top surgeon from Boston be flown out in a military jet LBJ uh, denies that. He won't allow that to happen. Uh, Humphrey, the vice president, uh, hears from the family and offers eventually Air Force Two to fly the family back east because Humphrey is aghast that LBJ is still fighting. Um, This is Ethel you see here. This is RFK laying on the ground. You can barely see him. It's black and white. This is from the Life magazine uh, photographer. Um, anyway, make a long story short, LBJ, uh, does not even stop the feud in death. Um, he bans RFK from being buried at Arlington Cemetery next to his brother. Numerous aides have to come to him and just say, boss, this is just insane. You can't do this. This is just a bridge too far. And eventually RFK is buried at Arlington next to his brother. But it's just to demonstrate the hatred that LBJ had for him. In 1964, at the Democratic Convention in Atlantic City, LBJ becomes, on the record, of course, uh, this is considered by many historians to be true, the first American president to ever use the FBI against his political enemies. This is, I, I just have to accept it. I don't know if it's true, but it's been documented fairly uh, repeatedly. We may be going into LBJ more on a whole. Right. Episode. That'll be a separate episode. But I just wanted to say that LBJ in 1964 gets Jay Hoover to send 30 FBI agents to Atlantic City 
to uh, monitor the activities, 30, 30 of, of RFK. And those 30 uh, are never taken off the case. From 1964 to 1968, 30 FBI agents are assigned by LBJ and Hoover to monitor the activities of Robert Francis Kennedy. That's a fact. I mean, you could say what you want about it, but RFK was aware of it and turned down the security offer by the FBI in L.A. that night and turned down LAPD wasn't offering any either. So he just had Rosie Greer and Rayford Johnson, you know, uh, and a couple of ex-FBI agents who was family's friends defending him that night. There was really no protection around him. Now, the 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 thing I was wanted to tell you about, which was the Clyde Tolson. We did that. The timeline. Um, this is the McDonald thing. OK. Uh, so we did that. The Lockheed with Cesar. I might do one thing before we go. Yeah. Which I'm sure everybody wants to know. Yep. Let's talk about the dress. Okay. So this is a sample of a dress number four. These were put into a room at LAPD. I think there was 12 of them, uh, variations on this theme. And they left uh, Sandra Serrano in the room with these eight to 12 variations on the polka dot dress and asked her, intimidated her to focus on them and pick the one, the closest one to uh, what she felt the woman was wearing that night. Now, um, this seems to be the closest and it's not just from Sandra Serrano. It, it was numerous other witnesses described the dress in uh, similar uh, terms artistically. So from what we understand, the woman uh, was at the bar. Uh, Sirhan went out to get his car, realized he couldn't drive. He was too drunk. He'd had four Tom Collins. He comes back to the bar. He's got the gun in his pocket. She takes him to get coffee. Uh, he finds the coffee with her. She is standing next to him uh, in the pantry next to the tray stacker of the round metal trays that stack up that he was standing behind with her. Numerous witnesses felt that they were together and uh, LAPD was never able to find her. And they substituted Valerie Schulte, who, who was a smoking hot blonde in a green and white polka dot dress who had her leg in a cast and a crutch because she had been skiing a big bear and broke her ankle. So mm -hmm. Valerie Schulte, interestingly enough, becomes the LAPD version of the girl in the polka dot dress. And you say, well, why her? She's having sex in a relationship with a guy named John Minor, the assistant district attorney. <laughs> Again. Of Los Angeles, that was his girlfriend. Yeah, she uh, also turned up dead. Like uh, no, 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 no. That, later, that right? was that was um, that was another girl who turned. That was another. That okay. was a, a former prostitute. Um, but then you were digging through some film. Yeah, I was going through some newsreel footage a year ago when I was working on my own film, uh, RFK Must Die, and I found this photo uh, of a campaign worker, quote unquote. This is in the ballroom. And she meets the description of everybody, the bouffant hairdo, the turned up nose, the white on black polka dot dress, the kind bib. Of squared. Yeah. Yeah. She and I don't know who she is or whatever happened to her, but there's two photos I have of her that never been published before. There's that one photo and this one here of her looking into the camera. 
And this bouffant wig thing on her head was mentioned by everybody. Uh, and the turned up nose, which is hard to see in this case, but they said she was a Middle Eastern looking or dark, swathy. Um, I don't know who she is, but this is the closest I've ever seen to an actual human being depicted in the polka dot dress that night in the ballroom. That nose could be turned up in this. Angle. Yes, I thought I thought, I thought the same thing. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Not conclusively, but it's I wouldn't rule it out from that. Exactly. And she's got the hairdo that they described. She's got the bib that everyone described, the polka dot dress. I mean, no one knows who this woman is. She's never been identified. No one's ever photographed her. I plucked this off the screen myself from just random newsreel footage. Um, and I don't know who she is. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I, this is just an educated guess on my part that this is the actual woman in the polka dot dress. We'll have to see if I can get a copy of that footage and see what yeah. we can do with it. Yeah, uh, I, I could be enhanced in some regard. I, again, I don't mm. know what she's doing there and what the deal is. I mean, how many women could they? But be? they claim there was nobody in a polka dot dress that didn't exist. Right. Well, they do claim that Valerie Schulte oh, wore her, yeah. the green polka dot dress with these big giant polka dots that are like the size of uh, a baseball. It's ridiculous that she's got a crutch and she's got straight blonde. Newport Beach hair. It doesn't look at every single witness that was confronted with Valerie Schulte's photo. Every witness just laughed and said, no, that doesn't look anything like her. This is a blonde from Newport Beach. You know, everybody just laughed it off, um, including Sandra Serrano. So uh, to this day, we don't know. We, you know, she could have been some sort of an handler. Some people believe it was um, the daughter of uh, uh Khalid Khan from Iran, who was in town with all these different um, people volunteering for the campaign. This was an Iranian friend of the Shah of Iran. Uh, I'm not sure what that storyline is. It's fairly well developed, uh, almost too developed. And my, my instinct tells me that it may be an Israeli attempt to uh, do something towards the Iranian secret police at that point, because Khan was on the run. The Shah was in power, and this uh, woman that, that they described in some of the literature was his daughter, uh, Sharir Khan, I believe. I don't really buy into the story, but there is an entire narrative about the Iranians uh, being at the ambassador that night involving a guy named Jeff Fahey, who met the girl and took her for a ride up the coast. I, I mean, it's just a crazy story, but it is it is out there in the zeitgeist of the uh, assassination literature wow amazing and we're running against the wall in this so to wrap up because we can't really do it justice in in, in two minutes right i just want to get in yeah just for two minutes if we can go a couple minutes longer i yeah. this is baxter ward baxter ward was uh the top newscaster in la at the time he was on abc news he was the highest rated newscaster in the city uh he made the most amount of money of any newscaster in la uh, the second guy was a guy on NBC, a distant second, a young kid coming up in the ranks uh, locally named Tom Brokaw. And Ward um, had a series of shows on the weekends where he brought on Don Schulman, the KNXT reporter. He interviewed all the major players on ABC on his weekend show where he went through uh, the entire case. And eventually ABC got tired of him uh, doing this and he moved to KCAL 9 
which was um, a fledgling station at the time. But the news director, to get such a rock star as Baxter Ward, um, gave him editorial control of the news. And Ward seized it and put together a spotlight-like team of all-stars to investigate the Kennedy assassination. He brought in investigators. He brought in top news people. He brought in young Turks. And they began to investigate the entire assassination from the ground up. And when that stalled, that's how dedicated Baxter Ward was. Uh, Baxter Ward, when that stalled, Baxter Ward quit his job as a newscaster and ran for county supervisor of Los Angeles. That's how dedicated Baxter Ward was to find out who killed RFK. Baxter Ward then becomes uh, one of the five kings of L.A. County. They're called the five kings. He becomes uh, one of the five county supervisors, the most powerful position in L.A. even today. And he becomes the head of the coroner's commission, the coroner's committee. And he picks the coroner's committee for one reason, and that is to get a, a committee hearing on the autopsy of RFK. And if you can show some of the photos from that hearing, we will see how he brings in Thomas Noguchi in the hearing in L.A. Um, you'll, that's Noguchi in the background explaining the angles of the bullet shots in a live, the only hearings ever held on the assassination of Robert Kennedy. These were live hearings, completely packed. The room, you see here is a color photo. If you can zoom in, you'll see uh, one of the aides putting up some of the ballistic photos of the bullets and how they don't match. What Ward determined, um, he didn't determine it, but the ballistic experts that he brought in were able to determine was that the bullets did not match. The, the bullets, uh, 47 that was in Kennedy's neck, did not match the bullets that were in Wiesel's stomach. And most of the experts said two different guns had to be used. They're showing the different ballast scan um, uh, breakdown of the bullets. Um, the, the bullets that were, were in Sirhan's gun were two cantaloupe bullets, which you can you can see here. This is a two cantaloupe, 22 slug right there. You see the striations around the top, two circles, two cantaloupes. And this is what's known as a single cantaloupe bullet. Now, they, any gun can fire both bullets, but the point of the matter is that they checked where Sirhan bought his bullets, and that company only, only made two cantaloupe bullets. So the single cantaloupe bullets were fired from a different amount of ammunition from a different gun, simply because they knew where Sirhan had bought the ammunition, and the company that made it only made uh, double cantaloupes. And they also went to the uh, shooting range, uh, where Sirhan supposedly shot off hundreds of rounds the day before the FBI scooped up 40,000, 40,000 empty shell casings and analyzed every single one of them. Not one of them could be shown to come from Sirhan's gun out of the 40,000, which is an interesting development. But if you could just show the photos of, of the hearing, I think that's Noguchi in color talking about the armpit shot over there underneath the armpit. Noguchi in great detail in the hearings talking about it. They tried to stop him from testifying in the hearings. A guy named John Minor tried to block him from going in, called him a dirty little Jap, um, according to sources. Here's uh, Noguchi testifying again under oath in the hearing. There should be a couple of other color shots maybe of the hearings or no? Well, I, I put that it? two color shots that were 
Okay, mm -hmm. I just wanted to see if there's something. There was one I really wanted to see, I think. That's a good one. Is there anything else there? Or? Yeah, it's the one that I showed to start. Um, okay, I'm sorry. No, that's fine. And then... These I, I got at the USC, uh, USCL, US, <laughs> that's the clearest UCLA thing. archives. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. Well, we get the, we get the gist of it. The, the fact of the matter is this leads to the reopening and reshooting of the, of the weapons and by a committee, uh, the Wenke commission, which then, uh, ends up with these ballistic experts all disagreeing and, and agreeing on certain things, disagreeing on other things. And most of the agreement was that the bullets could not have come from the same gun, that there had to be two guns. And the two guns um, were described early on by uh, some of the ballistic experts who testified, uh, Bradford and uh, another gentleman who came from Pasadena. And they were the ones that realized quite quickly, these forensic experts, LAPD had a forensic expert named Dwayne Wolfer, who looks like Bud White out of L.A. Confidential. I just want to put up a shot quickly of, of Dwayne Wolfer, because <laughs> Dwayne Wolfer, if you can, let's see if we could find him. Uh, um, there he is. There, there he is. Okay. This guy is supposed to be the lead criminal chemical forensic expert for LAPD, but he happens to be a big lug who looks like Bud White from L LA Confidential. <laughs> the idea that this guy is a chemistry scientist is preposterous. He is just a lug who apparently used a different gun, a different gun, to test fire and said it was Sirhan's gun in trial. And he wrote the wrong serial number on the on the envelope with the bullets. It was the right serial number, but the wrong gun. And the gun was used in some other crime. He took that gun, fired the shots, and then testified under oath that that gun was the only gun that could have been used in the assassination of RFK. And he never used the Sirhan gun by his own admission. He never used it. He used another gun. And then, of course, they destroyed the gun, which was a tradition among LAPD. It was just too large to be stored anywhere. They had to destroy it. Well, now... Um this is all important too because you've written a treatment for a film correct and well no it's a full script the treatment script, okay. came first Sorry. but the full script is now in the hands oddly enough of the kennedys uh robert kennedy jr has it and bobby kennedy the third has it he's a director and he just directed a, a marvelous little film called fear and loathing in aspen about hunter thompson running for sheriff a feature film not a documentary and Bobby Three is a, is apparently you know full fledged director now, and uh, Thomas Jane's company is involved. Renegade Film, here's Thomas, um, a rugged individual, and his company is attached to produce. And uh, Thomas Jane is an actor, of course, from The Punisher and uh, you know uh, Boogie Nights and and Mickey Mantle '61 and a lot of other films. Hung, and uh, there's also Josh Brolin, who we feel might be a good selection. Here's Josh Brolin. Uh, we're trying to find the right guy to play uh, Baxter Ward, who these are the two leading candidates at this time, trying to talk Tom into it. He's rather reluctant to play anybody. But uh, Brolin also is a, a fantastic actor who's a dead ringer uh, for Baxter Ward. So uh, we are pursuing that feature film at this time to try to get that made in the, in the, in the guise of the spirit of JFK. It's a very similar type movie. We see the um, 
movie through the eyes of Baxter Ward uh, and kind of the, the storyline that I just mentioned to you goes through the film. Baxter Ward had OCD. He didn't never shook hands. He had all kinds of quirks, um, but he was a populist in the words of, of Robert Barnes. And he ran as a populist. He was a Democrat in name only, but a uh, populist who invented something. Uh, he wanted to put mass transit through Los Angeles. The, the, the um, cars were taken away. The little trolley cars were taken away in the 50s by the auto industry that pressured L.A. into doing away with mass transit and these commuter cars. Baxter Ward wanted to bring mass transit back to L.A., and he was ridiculed for it, uh, something called Baxter's Choo Choo, which was an experimental train that ran down to San Diego. Uh, years later, Baxter Ward was vindicated because they eventually, his work led to Metrolink, which is now in, in, in business today in Los Angeles because of Baxter Ward. That was his other cause other than the RFK Association was bringing mass uh, transit in the form of Metrolink back to LA. Well, perfect. And yeah. <clears throat> wow, that wraps up the story here. What do we have coming next? Now, to let everybody know, I'm working on populating the channel and coming up with things. I actually pulled out a little something that I recorded with Mark a bit ago. Mark was behind a show called VH1 Confidential. <laughs> and um, we have a little ditty on there about you? I didn't know this Cheryl Crow. And oh, Cheryl Crow? Putting the curse this of Cheryl on the Crow? channel. Yep. The, yeah. uh, the curse of Cheryl Crow and how certain people were dying around her. Oh. That's going to be coming out anytime, so okay. consider subscribing. Right on. I apologize that uh, Barnes is not able to make it. He did tell me that the plumbers still were alive. still at the house. Right. But... I hope he's still okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, Barnes is obviously always welcome, and very, very likely he will show up. Well, we should some do point. LB... we do LBJ, and that'll lure Barnes in because I know he's he wants oh, yeah. to. There, I've got so much stuff on LBJ. That's an entire show about him and Jumbo and. You know, we also have <laughs> Jumbo. We also have an author coming up who um, I think we're settling out. That might be our next full live stream. I don't know. We haven't talked it out, but um, his claims are about uh, RFK and Marilyn Monroe, and they're quite extreme. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, Mike Rothmiller. Yeah, uh, with his book uh, Bombshell. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. Yeah, I forgot about <laughs> Okay, yeah, that's coming up too. That's going to be fascinating. But yeah, we could do that. We'll do LBJ. Uh, we've got a lot of, just to close out the political stuff, I think um, the LBJ one will really put the nail in the coffin because I believe that all roads lead to LBJ. Um, Martin Luther King, JFK, and RFK all, in my investigation, mm -hmm. lead, to, lead to this guy. Well, perfect. Right. And on that note, everybody, again, please subscribe, tell a friend, trying to get enough subscribers so mark can you know pay and get some groceries you gotta take care of mark Let, you know, at least get mark a comb <laughs> everybody subscribe so we can buy mark a comb i don't know if he'll use it but we could buy mark a comb and on that note thank you thanks Eric. Thank you.